This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, August 9th, the Bad Grandpa edition. I am Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in the Bay Area, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 15. Gabe and Rebecca are both out this week, but I am holding down the fort with Mom and Dad are Fighting All-Stars, two of them, in fact. Hey, I'm Dan Kois. I'm an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who is 13, and a Harper, who just turned 11. And I'm Catherine Goldstein. I'm an independent journalist and the mom of Asher, who is three, and I live in Durham, North Carolina. It's like a super group. It's the Traveling Wilburys of parenting podcast right. happening right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dibs on Roy Orbison. <laughs> um, today on the show, listener questions about a chauvinist grandpa and how to talk to your kids about the Confederate flag. Plus, we're going to have endorsements, and in Slate Plus, we are discussing the things we learned from our summer vacation. But first, it is triumphs and fails, so let's get to it. Dan, do you have a triumph or a fail this week? Uh, I have a fail, and it's the worst kind of fail. It's a boring, bureaucratic paperwork fail, the kind that uh, that seems to really um, define my parenting uh, in many ways. So um, this fail, and I hope our listeners... Um, are wide awake for this one. Uh, it's about flex spending <laughs> for childcare. Those of you who do not use this may not know what this is, but so many employers, um, uh, you have the ability to take a certain amount out of your paycheck pre-tax each check, and then it goes into this fund, this flex spending fund, and you can use it for childcare, for dependent care expenses, right? You can use it for daycare, or for nursery school, or whatever, and you get reimbursed this tax-free money for the stuff that you spend on, which is in theory great, right? It's a way to you know to get this tax-free uh, money to use for a, a valuable thing. Um, we've always used it. We found it slightly annoying that you have to, you know, set aside the money and then fill out all the forms and anything, but it's way better than a health, the similar health savings account, which people often use for their healthcare expenses, because at least with childcare, you can plan ahead, right? You have some sense at the beginning of the year what your childcare expenses might be. You know, you know, you need summer camps or you know that your kid's going to be in daycare for these four months or whatever. Um, you don't know with healthcare, you don't know. When someone's going to like break their arm, you don't know when you're going to incur healthcare expenses. So sometimes we used the healthcare version of this fund. And then at the end of the year, no one got sick. And our reward for no one getting sick is that we have to like spend $600 on band-aids and sunscreen because that's what's eligible on your health savings account. Uh, and so that's stupid. But anyway, this year we put $2,500 in our, in our FSA for dependent care, which seemed right. It seemed like what we were going to spend this year on day camps, uh, for the two of them for the whole summer. So we signed them up for their day camps and they did their camps and they loved them. And now we're filling out the forms. And we just discovered that the FSA is only for kids under 13. Lyra is 13. So none of her childcare expenses are covered anymore. They, 
we just can't get that money reimbursed. So now uh, we've got like a grand that we're never going to get back. I guess we could like hire a babysitter we don't need for the fall, or we could sign Harper up for like some activity that she doesn't care about because the money's already gone. So we might as well spend it on something. But basically this is like our money. And because I didn't read the fine print, probably we're going to lose a thousand bucks, which whatever. Those are the rules. I messed it up, but it makes me so angry. Like, why do they do it this way? And why yeah. is 13 the cutoff? And like, are they expecting that every 13 year old in America no longer needs care of any kind and just has a job or something? Uh, and why don't they let us write it off on our taxes? And where does the money go if we don't use it? Really, does it just sit yeah. in this fund forever? Or does Slate get it back? Or does the government get it to blow on beer? Or like, does fucking Etna get to keep <laughs> oh, God. it? If fucking Edna gets to keep it, I'm going to fucking oh, lose no. it. <laughs> anyway, that's my face. No, this is the worst. That's you've been robbed. You've been robbed. I've been fucking like, robbed. That feels to me crazy. Is that normal? I don't do it. I haven't done a lot of FSA stuff in my various careers. Is that normal for money to just disappear into the, the ether? Yeah. If you don't use it, it's gone. Right. If you cannot show that you spent it on what it was eligible for, it is gone. Yeah. That I feel a heartbreaking amount of empathy for you, Dan. I've had my fair share of uh, receipts and tax problems and uh, health insurance stuff. So I just know how insanely bureaucratic bureaucratic these systems are. But one thing I was like trying to think like, what is the possible bright side of this? And the only bright (laughs) side I could think of is that because you use this diligently for so many years, you probably at least saved that $1,000 in the tax in like not paying taxes on the money before. So like, it's still so, so annoying. So but we're probably to, you we're came out of level. ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. I appreciate that. Sorry. That's very kind, Catherine. <laughs> I'm trying to like think of any way to give you a silver lining, but that really sucks. I'm so sorry. Yeah, there's no silver lining. You didn't lose a thousand dollars. You had a thousand dollars stolen from you, and and I feel like this is the beginning of like the most epic revenge movie ever. Like this is where you go all the way. This is where you go, Liam Neeson, on your thousand dollars, and just that's be right. Like, <laughs> just, I don't know who you are, Etna, or what your game is, but I'm coming to find you and get my $1,000 back. HSA in theater, September 2019. <laughs> Man, that is bad. Uh, Catherine, how much money did you lose in your triumph or fail this week? <laughs> my, uh, I have a triumph. It was not monetary, um, but I feel pretty, I feel pretty good about it. So Um, My son Asher just turned three. And as you both know, having older kids, like three is a really interesting turning point. And I think moving from baby toddler years to really more of kid and really having more autonomy and independence and starting to really be able to think complexly and and, uh, there's there's synapses firing that were not firing a couple months ago, I would say. So um, my triumph is that, well, I think it's a little bit of a, a micro triumph that I think is leading me to a macro triumph. So the micro triumph was um, my husband, Travis, was out of town. And, you know, I was doing all that solo parenting things where there's just extra chores and extra things you have to organize when you um, are doing stuff on your own. And I realized the house was like a total disaster and Asher's toys were just everywhere, just all over the house. And I was like, oh God, I really don't feel like cleaning up all these toys. And then I was like, wait a second, he can clean them up. 
He's old enough to do that now. He understands these concepts. He goes to school where they clean up toys every day, multiple times a day. And so I realized I had been kind of stuck in that, oh, he's a baby. You, it's just easier if I do this. He doesn't know how to do it. He can't do this. And maybe this moment should have come you know, before he was almost three. But honestly, so I just told him that morning, you know, tonight, uh, you know, he gets some screen time in the evening. So I was like, after we do your iPad, we're going to clean up all the toys. And he was like, okay. And so then that night when we, it was time, I said, okay, Asher, we're going to clean up all your toys. And he did it. I helped him, but he, you know, spent a good bit of time cleaning everything up. And so now we've like worked that into our routine in the evening that he cleans up all his toys. And I feel really proud of that because it's like, I feel like we could have gotten stuck in the idea that he's still a baby and he needs us to do this stuff. And what has led me to sort of a larger triumph is it opened my eyes to like seeing him more as a kid and more capable, I think, than I was really seeing him before. So I feel like I'm more likely after this triumph to like suggest that he find his own shoes or that he put on his own clothes or, you know, that he can do a few things on his own. And I think he's still like a bit more needy with us than he is at school and like asks us to do things for him that he doesn't ask other adults to do. But I do feel like this moment of getting him to clean up his own fucking toys was like a really great moment of of starting to see his sort of independence as a kid. Yeah, that's really great. I, I think that's so great. I think that's super great. Like, I, I I, feel like we didn't do that well enough all the way through the whole process. And now we have kids who, ugh, I mean, they act like washing dishes is like doing brain surgery. Like, it takes them an hour to take out the track. Like, they, like, we definitely, I feel like, did not do this. And if I could go back to that age, and I, I don't think that three is too late. At all. I think I don't think there's like, oh, I should have done this earlier. I think you're right on time with this. This is an excellent triumph. And I I predict it will pay tremendous dividends. Yeah, it makes me think of the um, KJ Delantonia piece in The Times this week, you know, about getting kids to do chores, which struck a nerve with me. And I think a lot of parents because I've done such a bad job getting my kids to do chores in part because (laughs) – it's just like fucking easier for me to do it than to have them screw it up. Um, but like finding the right tasks for them at the right age uh, is a really good thing for a parent to do. And so this is like a great stepping stone. Um, I have, I think, I feel like this is probably a fail. I um, Listeners to the show will know that one of the ongoing dramas in our family is um, Ezra's struggles with executive function, which he totally gets from me and I feel really guilty about. And uh, as a person who myself is a freelancer and is uh, consistently working on 150 million different projects at a time, I've had to learn all these methodologies to counteract the chaos that is inside my brain. And over the past few, this summer, I really like hit a turning point. I think I talked about this maybe on the show. I don't know, but I had a big deadline for a huge piece and then it was like a nightmare and so on and so forth. And I got it in and it's fine. And, but it just was like, oh, I can't, I have to like rejigger my whole situation here. So I went back to some methodologies that I had learned that people had shown me earlier, actually about how to organize stuff and how to keep multiple rotating deadlines in order. And so I did all this stuff. I like downloaded this site blocker on my like computer that kept me from going on the sites, the infinite scroll sites, which suck up all of my time. And I downloaded this app blocker on my phone, which I talked about in the last show. And I 
figured out this new calendar method, and I was feeling really psyched about all this stuff. And so then the school year comes around, and I'm like, man, this is so great. I can't wait to show Ezra everything that I have learned and all the ways there are to organize your like life and your work, and, uh, and this is going to be so helpful to him. So on the first day of school, I said, hey, um, by the way, I'm going to, I learned all this stuff this summer that has super been helping me, and I'm going to like show you like after school. And he was like, okay, dad, sure. So, uh, so I sat him down <laughs> after school and I said, all right, I'm going to give you a lesson. These are the five things that I do, you know, that have helped with my blah, blah, blah. And I started showing him and he hated every single thing. I mean, he resisted <laughs> every single thing. He was just like, this is so stupid, dad. Oh, why are you doing it? Like it took like what really should have been like a 20 minute conversation where I just was like, hey, here's how this app works. Here's a method I've learned about calendaring. Here's how I handle my to-do list. Here's a little trick I learned. It took like 45 minutes to an hour and a half somewhere in there because after everything, he was just like, why? This is so stupid. I hate this. Oh, why are you bothering me? And at one point he was like, I was having such a good day. And then all of a sudden I come home and it's this crap. Like, oh, I just was like, oh, no. okay, this isn't going smoothly at all. <laughs> and he went and he went through his whole like thing. And then finally, and this is the thing about him that drives me crazy. After he did all the resisting and all the dramatics, and then he likes to spin out into the existential whenever he's confronted with anything. He's like, what is the purpose of this? What are we even doing as a society, Dad? Like, He's like, is this what our life is? Just a bunch of numbers and a calendar? Like, I'm just like, bro, like, take it down a notch. And so after he goes through all that and tempers flare and like he gets frustrated and I like kept my cool like 100% and just kind of let him bounce off the walls. Finally, after all that... I said, okay, so <clears throat> what homework do you have to do tonight? He's like, I have biology and math and English. And I was like, okay, well, here's how you calendar those things. And then I showed him the method. And I was like, and when you're done, you know, you've scheduled this time to do the biology. How long do you think it'll take? Then when you're done, you cross it off the list. And he said, okay, well, I can see how that's helpful. <laughs> I was just like, if you could see why it was helpful, then why did you send me through an hour of like questioning everything I am as a human being? And uh, ultimately, I, he finally calmed down enough and I was able to like show him the stuff. And he was like, OK, yeah, I guess I can see. But I just was like, that didn't go anywhere near the way I wanted it to go. And it's like it's this constant. I always feel like with parenting, I always feel like um, Charlie Brown with the football, you know, and Lucy, where he like goes to kick the football and she pulls it away every time. I feel like every time I go into an interaction thinking I'm just going to have a very simple, very smooth, very brief discussion with the kid about this thing. Every single time it turns into massive chaos. And I'm surprised every single time. And it's like at some point. I need to stop being surprised by that. So overall, I mean, I guess it was a triumph because we got through. But still, I think I think the fail part was like, even even though I've known this this person for 15 years, I still like was not prepared for the level of resistance that I faced going into that situation. So my advice is always to consider it a small fail that will eventually become a greater triumph. Ignore the part <laughs> where. You completely misjudged the situation and sent your kid on an existential spiral. Instead, focus on the fact that now he's got some calendaring skills. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. He swore to me he was never going to use them, though. That was like his final. He was like, sure. if God is my witness, I will never do this. You know, and I was like, I was like, OK, you don't have to do it. Just let me show you. Just be quiet long enough for me to show you the thing. You can do what you want. But I do think it's possible that 
I don't know. I mean, it's it's all, it's all planting seeds. Parenting is so crazy difficult. Who even knows, man? I could totally imagine three weeks you just casually walk by him and all of a sudden he's like whizzing through with all the calendar stuff and like never mentioned <laughs> it to you that he's using it again. Like it seems like a classic teenager like I'm not doing that because you suggested it. But really, like, he could end up using it. So even though it was, like, such a painful process, I think you should update us if you actually see him using these things because I think there's some chance he actually will do it. Yeah, I and, yeah, I think you're right about that. That's Because he does do that. He does argue with me about stuff, and then I catch him, like, a day later explaining the exact thing that I've explained to his little sister as though he himself invented the concept. <laughs> so this is, not off, this is not off-brand for him. But it does raise this other lo- lingering question, which is, like, that I was talking with his mom a little bit about, which is, like, how much should I try to, like, you know, now that we're in the zone where I've showed him this stuff— how much should I be trying to check in with him about it and sort of like gently enforce it or like how to play this going forward? Or should I just be like, it's it's all on you and that's all there is to it? I think I think at his age, you got to be like, it's all on you, right? I mean, you yeah. can't like the more times you say anything to him about it, the less likely he is to do it. Yes, I think that's that's probably right. That's just so hard because. Yeah. I've definitely learned a lot about my own codependency <laughs> when it comes to parenting because I have such this is actually why my kids don't do chores like or, or suck at doing chores. And Joe and I both have like admitted that we have this problem because we just can't let them do stuff maybe as much as we should. And so um, it's like it, it's like nails on chalkboard sometimes watching your kids stumble around doing things wrong when you know exactly how they should be doing it, but you simply can't tell them. It's very, very difficult. I have this vision of like a week from now, you opening the door to his room and him slamming his laptop shut and you being like, oh, was that porn? And it turns out it was just a calendar, but he didn't want you to see it. <laughs> oh, that's exactly like something that would happen. Uh, okay. On that note, moving on. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. First, we're going to do a little bit of business. As always, if you have a question you'd like us to answer on the air, then leave us a message at 424-255-7833, or you can email us at slate.com. Also, check out the Slate Parenting Group on Facebook. It is a really fun and supportive community, and it's a great place to talk about the show and share your own parenting triumphs and fails and post questions and get feedback from the group. So just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. Also, tickets are still available for Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival. Join Slate's politically-minded shows, Political Gab Fest, Trump Cast, Amicus, and El Gab Fest, and The Gist. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas, on September 29th. That's a Saturday, and that is in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. This is an intimate venue with limited seating, so go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. In Slate Plus today, we're going to talk about the parenting tips and tricks that we've learned the hard way from our interminable summer vacations. To hear segments like that, sign up for Slate 
Plus. Slate Plus is a great way to help support us for just $35 in your first year. You can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and all of your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus to join Slate Plus today. Okay, let's go. All right, it is time for a listener question. As always, if you have a question you'd like us to answer on air, leave us a message at 424-255-7833, or you can email us at momanddadatslate.com. This question is being read by Slate's Sasha Leonard. Dear Mom and Dad are fighting. My husband, our 16-month-old boy, and our six-and-a-half-year-old girl are just home after a three-week holiday at my mother and father's vacation house. My father is in his mid-70s, He's generous to a fault and is beyond excited to have us when we all come home. The problem is that he's a terrible chauvinist. This has always been the case, but I become more concerned this year because maybe my daughter is getting older and I worry about his influence. There are routine things that bother me. He does not help in any real way around the house and sits in his chair, scrolling through his iPad while my mother zooms around the house doing everything, cooking, cleaning, tidying up, making lists for the grocery store, He doesn't say thank you and gets irritated when things aren't the right way at the right time. What I found most upsetting this year, though, were his comments about young women and their appearances. When my aunt and her granddaughters were visiting, he told the younger girl, age 11, that she had butterfly shoulders and was husky. He told my niece, age 17, that she shouldn't eat so much as she would lose her figure. I can see that my six-year-old daughter is distancing herself from my dad. I have a very strong relationship with my mother, and she recognizes that there's a problem, to an extent, but none of us think that she realizes the full scope of it. My sisters and I have decided we need to talk to my dad about this attitude towards women, specifically his comments about women's physicality, but the question is how. He is easily prone to anger and takes criticism very badly. He is remarkably unself-aware. We want to help him see that he can't talk about women's bodies, either in a complimentary way or otherwise, and that we're not being PC in demanding this. It's just what's right. Can you recommend a way of broaching this? Should we do it all together or separately, in person or virtually? Should we accept that a 74-year-old man can't change and say nothing? Thanks so much, daughter of a sexist. So... I think there there's so many different levels to this question. Um, the first thing I want to address is the issue between the mother and father and the dynamics of their marriage. Um, my first reaction is that, you know, they've been married for almost 50 years. You are not going to change that dynamic. And so sort of put that to the side. And I think don't expect your mother to intervene on your behalf in terms of this issue. Um, and also, I mean, I think if you know your mother is doing everything and your dad's sitting around and watching the iPad, if you're all together, I think it's totally reasonable to ask certain for his help in certain things and not just assume he um, can't help. I think you know you there's a line in there that I think is really important in analyzing this question, which is that he is remarkably unself-aware. So I think that there it, it appears that your dad. Uh, you know, loves you and loves his grandkids and wants to have a great time with you all. Um, But it it honestly sounds like he is not aware that making comments about, you know, teenage girls' bodies is really, like, can promote eating disorders and that can be really bad for their self-esteem. Like, he 
it, it may seem so obvious to you that these things are the wrong things to say and do, but it sounds like he may just have no idea. So I think there's a couple of ways potentially to address this, but I think um, being sure that whenever you do decide to address it, that you are really being specific about what kind of comments you do and don't want um, or, or that are specifically upsetting you, which are specifically around, you know, women's appearances and bodies. I think giving him examples, I think will be really useful because I, I know it sounds crazy, but honestly, he may not know that this is something he shouldn't be doing. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about the specificity. Um, I'm sure that he has no idea that there's research uh, supporting the notion that the more you talk to teenagers about their bodies positively or negatively, and the more even they hear parents talking about uh, fatness or weight um, around the house, the more it influences those behaviors. Um, and I'm sure he has no idea that that's the case. And the more specific you can be with that request, as opposed to letting it spin out, as I'm sure you're tempted to do, as I would be tempted to do in your situation, into a larger conversation about his misogyny or the way he treats your mom or the way he doesn't lift a goddamn finger to do anything around the house, the more you do that, the harder it's going to be to stick to what is really important in this case, which is protecting your kids from these specific damaging messages. And so, I mean, I think the way to do it is in person. I think the way to do it probably isn't all of you all at once ganging up on him, um, or at least that's how it'll feel to him uh, to deliver this message. But I think one of you just simply needs to say, Dad, it's very important to me and to my sisters um, that we don't talk to our kids about things like their weight or comment positively or negatively on their appearance. That's a rule in our house, and it's because there's a lot of science backing up how damaging that can be, and it's really important to us that you and mom don't do it either. So I know that you sometimes like to compliment them on their appearance or talk about their appearance in some ways, but please don't. That's a rule. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I think the key thing is like it. it's like a little bit of a pick-your-battle situation. Like all the stuff described here is terrible, so the question isn't like, how do you find the worst thing and talk about it? It's like, how do you find the most effective way to bring about the change that you're trying to bring about? And I agree that, like, uh, it would be a pretty tall order to try at this point to intervene in your parents' marriage and to try and, like, change the dynamic of that because that's been going on for a long time. I, um, But I, I do think that, like, so I, th- I think that focusing specifically on the issue around comments around kids' bodies um, is likely to yield the best results. And I I like the idea of, like, including some clarity and research in it so, like, so that it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm just being bombarded with, like, this newfangled PC crap, blah, 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 women's livers, but, like, actually saying, like, here is some of the research that is, like, proven that this is an issue and we love our kids and we don't want this. I think you can leverage the fact that, as you say in your letter that like he loves his family and wants to have a good time with them. The only thing I would kind of disagree with Dan about is that I actually think this can work as a, like an intervention style thing because um, in some ways it is like an intervention because you're trying to step in to alter a behavior that has been going on for a very long time and has been having an impact on a lot of people. And one of the reasons the intervention structure style works is because it 
keeps the person who is the subject of it from feeling like, oh, this is just your issue. You're just bringing this up because you have an issue, right? By having kind of like a collective feeling of um, a lot of people are impacted by this and everyone can talk a little bit about the ways in which they're impacted. That seems to soften the message and put the focus not on you're doing wrong, but puts the focus on we're asking you to do something differently because what you're doing currently is hurting us. And I think that <clears throat> I think in a one on ones conversation, it's 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 maybe more likely to, to have it become like about the individual dynamic between the father and whichever kid or child comes to them to talk about it. And I think the intervention st- structure is also designed to like mitigate that, right? So that it doesn't become about, well, you've always been this way since you were in middle school. You've had an issue about me. You know, that it becomes like an opportunity for everyone to kind of voice in a clear way, like, this is how I feel about it. And the other thing I like about the intervention stuff is that the love is the key thing. That you begin by saying, we love you so much. And and like, we love, you know, we, we just, but we want, and so we, we think that you would want to know, because you probably don't know. I agree with you guys on that. We, we would want you to know that this is hurting us in this way that you may not be aware of and we'd like to tell you so that you have an opportunity to change it. I think that's the best thing, but I also would say all that, like, you, with the caveat that, like, you might not be able to get a person in the 70s to change his behavior. That's, like, yeah. a thing that m- might not happen. <laughs> and so, you know, as in all situations, when we talk about, like, the damage that sort of the world inflicts on kids or on people the half of the work of mitigating that has to do with trying to change the outside forces that are inflicting it and the other half of the work has to do with um with like working with the kid to process and dismantle and disentangle these messages and giving that kid the understanding of where this is coming from what this is about i think both things need to happen at the same time And I guess the final thing I would say is that the advantage of, you know, uh, kind of along those lines, like the advantage of like saying this directly and and kind of like dealing with this issue head on is that part of what your job is, is to show your kids how to deal with the existence of these messages. Right. Like that's part of your modeling for them how to address that. You're showing them that this is like that this stuff exists it impacts people in this way and there are people who are going to say and do this stuff and here's one of the ways that we know of to like deal with that so it's like an empowerment thing for the kid just as much as it is for the teenage daughter and for the 6 year old and for the other kids even the boys in that family it's an empowerment thing for them for them to see this discussion happen or to know about it as much as it is an actual attempt to change grandpa's behavior i i think that the idea of of you know, that the parents are willing to address and stand up for the kids and sort of reiterating what their values are is going to be a really powerful um, message and something that will stick with the kids. Um, And I think, you know, talking about if there are future incidents, talking about what happened and that that, that the kids know the parents are really on the kid's side and why they don't agree with that, why they think it was wrong to bring up, you know, allowing people to discuss if their feelings were hurt or what their reactions were to it, rather than sort of say, sort of 
going into this sort of stony wall of silence of like, oh gosh, grandpa said this horrible thing. Let's just never talk about it again um, and pretend it never happened. And then so the adults whisper about it later, um, I think might be a good good strategy. Uh, and one other thing I wanted to say about, you know, we don't know if this man is going to change or is capable of change, but I do think grandchildren are really a like perhaps the most powerful motivator of change in people um, out there. And I think um, there's a chance that, and I don't think that the the sisters should sort of go in. It's like, if you got, if you don't change, we're never visiting again, one slip up and we're out of here. Like, I don't think you should sort of come in with ultimatums, but laced in this conversation is like the, the, the children, uh, control the grandchildren. And if the environment, if this is really becomes a big issue, the children can choose to not bring the, the the family together. And I don't think that you should sort of come in with explicit threats, but that can be an undertone of this conversation that in order for us to have a really happy time together as a family, which we all love, these are some things that we want to change. And I think that that um, framing it in that way and escalating what that might mean if this gets to be a really bad situation, I think um, is is a tool that you have at your disposal. Grandkids are a great carrot and also a great stick. A great stick, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I also think that maybe, especially for the 17-year-old, part of the message to her is like having, like helping her understand some things that she can, some ways to deal with these comments, right? Like some things you can say, like what does she say when grandpa says, oh, if you eat that slice of cake, you're going to lose your figure. Like does she does she just kind of giggle and look to the parents for help? Or does she say, you know, that uh, grandpa, I really appreciate you <laughs> caring for me. But when you say stuff like that, this is how it hurts and this is how it feels. I think, um, you know, I think that like, again, as, as long as uh, along these lines of empowering the people who are the recipients of shitty behavior, as much as you attempt to work on the work on changing the behavior along those lines of that empowerment, I think, I think it's not too soon or the kid is too young to have conversations about specifically how do you deal with that? What can you say to grandpa when he says stuff like that? Yeah, that's really important. I mean, And I yeah. think that's useful for all three of those kids, not just the 17-year-old. I mean, I think you address it at different levels, but I think you can give all those kids tools to respond if, if he can't stop himself or doesn't want to stop himself from making those comments. Yeah, it's a tough situation. And um, thanks for writing in and do let us know how it goes. All right, time for another question. Hi, Mom and Dad. I need advice about how to simply and honestly talk to my children about the Confederate flag. We live in Virginia, and along a stretch of the interstate that we drive down frequently is a gigantic flagpole flying a huge Confederate flag. Today, my oldest daughter, who is four, asked about it for the first time. She asked several times, and her father and I exchanged a look and managed to ignore her. However, she was persistent and even got her two-year-old sister to look at it as well. My daughters are into places, maps, and flags, and I know this will come up again. I'm hoping to be better prepared with an answer next time. I don't want to just identify the flag and move on, because I know they will begin to notice it everywhere and point it out. Imagine them cheerfully citing it while we were out and about, as preschoolers do with everything they recognize. Makes my stomach turn. For background, my husband is black. I am half black and half white, and we have three daughters, ages four, two, and one. They have skin of varying shades of brown and hair with different types of curls from one another. So we've already begun talking about some obvious visual aspects of race. 
but I'm struggling with how to give them the information they need, while also explaining why it's something that makes people feel so many different emotions, including sadness, disgust, and anger for myself. As a teacher, I know that kids are often better at understanding complex issues than adults anticipate, but it's also important to consider what kids need to know and at what age. Thank you for your advice. <sighs> Boy, this is... <laughs> I, you know, when I was um, when I was about six years old, uh, p- people, listeners who grew up in the 70s and 80s will remember this. There was a show on TV called The Dukes of Hazard, And it was, it was like me and my brother and my cousin's favorite show. It was like the coolest show ever. And for those who don't remember, The Dukes of Hazard is about these good old boys, never meaning no harm, it beats all you ever saw, but in trouble with the law since the day they was born. And it's like these guys who live in Tennessee, Bo and Luke Duke, and they're, I guess, I guess they're like moonshiner types. And uh, But they're the good guys. Two modern day Robin Hoods, says the song sung by Waylon Jennings. And uh, and so they the plot is that they are always up to something. And then the, the, the cops and the shady mayor of the town, Boss Hogg, are always trying to catch them. And they never do. And, and every episode has like 100 car chases. And they're just riding through the backwoods of Tennessee and skidding around dirt roads and jumping over ravines. And we thought this was the coolest show ever, obviously. So the car they drove in was a 1976 Dodge Charger that was orange and blue with the number 76 on it. And... Uh, a Confederate flag on the top of the car. And, of course, like, being kids, we wanted this Charger. So we, like, got them. We all had Matchbox versions of it, and we would be just riding around the house and going, yeehaw, and, like, jumping over things and just having the greatest time ever. And one day, I had to be about six years old. Me and my brother were... Uh, we're, he's my half brother, different mother, same father. We're the same age, and uh, he. We were playing uh, with my cousin, and we're just having a good old time. And my dad just walked in the room and looked at the car, and he said, "Do you know what that is?" And we're like, "No, what is that?" And he was like, "That's a Confederate flag." And we were like, "Like a bank?" He was like, "No, a Confederate <laughs> flag is the flag of people who think you should be able to own slaves." And that was it. He like never, he like never brought it up again. And we were like, "Oh." Well, that's totally different. And I was just thinking about that this morning when I was reading this question because we, of course, we continued to have ongoing discussions about every aspect of this country's history, you know, in like car rides and in the ensuing years. And we actually did, you know, this was in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. So we would go to Virginia a lot. Richmond was where Six Flags was, which was the amusement park to end all amusement parks when we were kids. So we'd go to Richmond on a regular basis. And this is a conversation that came up. But one of the things about that is that like we, he, my dad didn't like intervene and say, you can't play with it and so on and so forth. He just told us what it was. And for some reason, in the long run, that seemed to have worked. He was really honest with us about this, the situation in this country. He was honest with us about like the crazy history and crazy ideas and the horror of it. And I think that there's value in that. And I think that there's like sometimes kind of a weird tendency to feel like we don't want to tell kids stuff about the crazy white supremacist violent history of this country. And I don't understand why that is. We talk to kids about stranger danger. That's another terrible, horrible thing. And yet every parent would feel we would all feel like every parent was remiss if they didn't introduce that concept and talk about what it means and how to deal with it and where it comes from, even if that means fielding difficult questions about, like, why would someone want to hurt kids and why would someone want to take me, et cetera, et cetera. Parents are ready to, do, to deal with that because they believe 
that that is a real thing that kids must know about in order to understand how to operate in the world. And for me, this stuff about the Confederate flag falls under that same category. I think if you if you don't want to be honest about how crazy this white supremacist stuff is, like, on the one hand, it may feel like you're protecting your children, but I think it's worth asking, what are you really protecting? Do you not want them to know that, like, it's really this bad? I just think it's a fact. I mean, that's the situation. And I don't think... I think finding age-appropriate language to talk about it, meaning language that they can understand the words, is is important. But I don't think it's necessary to, like, hem and haw over how to hide aspects of the reality from kids. We talk to them about earthquakes, fire, danger, death, strangers, abduction, etc. Why don't we talk to them as honestly about this is the question that I always have when I read a question like this. What do you guys think? I'm curious at the ages that these kids are, what form that conversation takes. Um, I mean, it seems likely that at least the youngest maybe don't have any knowledge of slavery, for example, as a historic fact. Um, and maybe it's time to bring that up. Uh, maybe it's as simple as saying, you know, people who fly that flag are making a message about how they think they think that people who look like us are inferior to them or are less than them. And that's not a kind thing to think. And so I don't like that flag. Maybe it's as simple as that. Um, I'm not sure. So it's notable to me that this is uh, a letter from a black mom with black kids um, and that this is something that she feels obviously is a particularly charged issue for her. Um, but, you know, my family drives down that stretch of I-64 all the time, and we've seen that gigantic Confederate flag. Uh, and it's a, it's a reminder that black families seem often to be having to have these conversations or feel they have to have these conversations uh, at times in their kids' lives when often white families have the ability to feel like they can just let it slide. And we've tried not to in our family, but I don't know that we've always done the best job. But it seems like the message – can be pretty similar no matter who it is that's delivering it, right? That this flag represents or is flown usually by people who feel strongly and wrongly that black people and immigrants are less than white people. And we don't agree with that. We think that that's wrong. And so we don't like that flag. Do you guys think that that is an adequate or useful message for a kid that age? Or do you think that that's going about it the wrong way? I, I'm thinking about this question very deeply because I have a kid around this age who's three and I had a, a, a moment very similar to this um, just this past Sunday because my son, um, so we live in Durham, North Carolina, which is right near the University of uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And my uh, parents live across the street from this very contentious monument called Silent Sam. And we were walking on the campus and we ran into some other kids that my son was playing with. And they were kind of all like playing peekaboo and hanging out around this Silent Sam monument. Um, you may have heard of Silent Sam because it has made national news this week because about 24 hours after we were there in front of Silent Sam, a bunch of protesters toppled it. Um, and it's been, it's a huge uh, issue here in North Carolina and it's become a national story. But um, 
one thing that I was thinking as I'm watching him hang out and play around this monument is like, what do I tell him about this statue? And and not even that I need to wait for him to ask, you know, what what is the statue and what does it represent? But is there still an opportunity and how do I bring it up in an age appropriate way? Um, and, you know, I think what's so and I think you know, one one other thing that I want to raise, which is just because I'm also seeing a lot of media coverage and how people are thinking about Confederate flags and Confederate monuments here in North Carolina. I mean, uh, I, I think that, you know, it's very clear, especially Silent Sam and the Confederate flag, like this stands for um, an absolutely isn't it's a racist symbol. It, it all the things you all said about how people see, you know, others as less than and it's sort of a tool of white supremacy um but the pe- a lot of people here believe they truly believe and they are wrong but they believe that it's just a sign of pride of their southern heritage and that they don't believe in slavery and they don't believe that you know people of color are less than they believe it's just a symbol of you know you know the the pride of the south and the, all this sort of bullshit so it's it's a complicated issue, and I, I would like to say that they are wrong in their, that belief, and that's not what these monuments are, and that's not what these flags truly represent. But that's why, like, the fact that Silent Sam came down here in North Carolina is, like, seen as controversial. Like, there's a lot of people who think that's terrible that protesters took down that monument. Um, so distilling all that for kids that are this young is something I really struggle with in how to raise and how to say, like, this flag is, you know, a symbol of ugliness and, you know, was used by people who don't share our values or who think things, things that we don't think. But I, I totally agree with Carvel that we shouldn't, as kids get older, sugarcoat this. And it shouldn't be like, oh, we should just hide the fact that this is about white supremacy and, you know, talk about stranger danger. Like every parent should have these conversations regardless of the, of of their race and every parent should have these conversations regardless of whether or not your kids are bringing it up. Like it's our obligation to bring it up too and, and initiate those conversations. And I'm just totally struggling and just feel like getting that age appropriateness is just so important to me. So I think that, I think that a lot of the struggling and like, and like stumbling over like <laughs> in the letter. And also when we were talking about it, everyone stumbled over after we said the word and the Confederate flag means and then kind of stopped and we're like trying to find the right words for it. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the narrative has, has been that there's this forceful narrative that's like, no, it, it doesn't mean this thing. And silent Sam, for example, doesn't mean this thing that it means this other thing. And, and while I have no doubt that there are people who genuinely believe that, I think the fact that those people are wrong is actually really important. And one of the fears that we have is of misrepresenting this group of people who feel consistently aggrieved and make a lot of noise about it. And we're afraid of misrepresenting them. So we, and, I, and I would even go so far as to probably argue that that might even be under, sort of in the subtext of this person's writing, even though they're a black family living in the South, actually, especially because they're a black family living in the South, they probably are too, they probably are as well, afraid of uh, misrepresenting people and kind of casting good people along the lines of bad people. However... Just like the grandfather who in the who in the previous question was like, he doesn't mean to be chauvinist and, and misogynist, but he is enacting chauvinism and misogyny. That's the same with this flag. 
there may be people who yeah. don't mean to be racist, but they are actively enacting racism. And like the Silent Sam thing is, I mean, like that statue's from 1913. And in the yep. speech, in the dedication speech, the guy talked about like the, the upliftment of the Anglo-Saxon race. In the dedication speech to Silent Sam, in the dedication speech, he talked about horse whipping a black person near 50 yards from this spot. Like that, he was like, that's what this is about. So, so it, any attempt now to kind of like say, well, it's not really about that. People may believe that, but that's not true. And I think that it's like we I think that is for this family and for myself and for anyone else who cares. You can't let that sort of like attempt to muddy the narrative actually muddy the way that you talk about it. I think you do have to be super clear about that. And that's one thing I appreciate about the way my dad phrased it. Uh, he was clear about it and he left it up to us to figure out what to do. Because remember, you not only are you helping kids live in the world they're in, you're also raising kids to deal with the world as it's going to be. They need to have some sense of clarity so that they can be active in the way that the values drive them to be active. So, I mean, I just want to call that out, that this idea that like, everyone's a little bit afraid of like pissing off the wrong people. But I think in this case, uh, it's okay to piss off the wrong people. All right. Well, uh, let us know what you ultimately decide. And of course, uh, this is going to be, it's going to pop up on the, uh, Slate Parenting Facebook page and I'm sure people will have a lot of opinions about it. So we look forward to hearing them. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now is the time for the part of the show where, as Gabe would put it, quote, we recommend things to you and we call it recommendations. Catherine, what you got? Okay, so following up on that uh, discussion about the Confederate flag and Silent Sam, there was a great podcast episode um, from Dear Sugars, which is a wonderful podcast um, that's actually in its last season and is ending soon. So should check it out if you haven't heard it. It's a New York Times podcast with Cheryl Strayed and Steve Almond. Um, and they had a great segment um, called Talking About Privilege with Catrice M. Jackson. And I really thought they took a question um, from a white parent about talking about uh, racial privilege and white supremacy and um, how to talk about that with kids that I think is further illuminating to this conversation. I got a lot out of it. I thought it was really interesting and important. And um, obviously, this is a comp this, you know, we've talked about race on this podcast before, and there's other podcasts um, that have discussed it. But I found that this particular segment um, was really interesting and useful. And if you want to sort of continue this line of thinking about how we can all think about different ways to talk to our kids about race, which is, I think, something that all parents should be thinking about. Um, I recommend that episode of Dear Sugars. 
talking about privilege. Dan, what do you got? Uh, it's slightly dumb to be recommending the like best-selling author of all time, basically, but I am <laughs> recommending Stephen King. Uh, so Lyra is the exact age I was when I started reading Stephen King, and she's really interested in horror stories. Uh, and so I like brought up a bunch of my old mass market paperbacks from the bookshelves and was like, give this guy a try. And she was like, who's this? Stephen King, she calls him. Uh, <laughs> but she loves it. She loves them. She only reads them during the day because she says if she reads them at night, she gets too scared. Uh, but this has been the summer that she has like read every fucking Stephen King book. Well, not every book. So um, I still remember like how how much different Stephen King books freaked me out when I was 13 or 14. And so I've been able to sort of suggest good starter books. I've suggested ones that I think might be a little too scary for her at this point and she might want to consider staying away from. But so like I steered her toward um, the short stories uh, like Night Shift and Skeleton Crew and the novellas in different seasons. That's the one that has Shawshank Redemption in it and The Dead Zone and Carrie and Misery. I told her mm. maybe she should not yet read Pet Cemetery, which is the scariest <laughs> fucking thing in the universe, um, or The Stand, which I think would make her uh, existential uh, in the way that your conversations about calendars, Carvel, made your son existential. Um, <laughs> I suggested she didn't read it, but she read it anyway, and then she didn't sleep for a week. But whatever. She's having the greatest time. So Stephen King, for your 13-year-old, go for it. Oh, my God. I remember re reading Christine one night uh, when I was like 12. I was staying at my aunt's house, and I just grabbed it off the bookshelf, started reading at 9 p.m. like an idiot, and I could not stop reading because I was afraid to close my eyes. Because I thought oh, yeah. a killer car was just going to burst in the room and run me over. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you want to be terrorized, by by all means, take Dan's recommendation. It's worth it. Yeah, it is, though. He's a really good writer, and uh, it's great. It's great stuff. Uh, I am also recommending a book, hopefully nowhere near as uh, horrifying. I'm recommending the book uh, Ocean Meets Sky by um, Terry Fan. And uh, this is the same author who made the book The Night Gardener, and this is another beautiful book about, uh, in this case, about a young boy who decides whose grandfather passes away, and he decides to go sailing as a way of honoring his memory, and he's searching for a place his grandfather told him about, which is where the ocean meets the sky. It's a fantastical, beautiful journey with great illustrations, and uh, it's just a fantastic book. That's Ocean Meets Sky by Terry Fan. That sounds great. What what age group is that for? I would say probably, well, because the pictures are so beautiful, I think it lasts for all ages, but I think you can read it as early as five or six. Great. That is our show for today. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Benjamin Frisch. The homepage for this show is slate.com slash mom and dad. If you have a question you'd like to ask us on air, please leave us a message at 424-255-7833. And you can always also join us on our Facebook page. Just search for Slate Parenting. And for Catherine Goldstein and Dan Coyce, I am Carvel Wallace, and we'll see you next week.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.